you have obesity, which is associated with super high mortality rates in poor countries, but it's also at the same time a very salient status signal. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanefonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Elisa Mackie graduated from the University of Zurich. She's a postdoctoral fellow at MIT, and she will join Brown University as an assistant professor in economics in 2023. Her work lies at the intersection of development and behavioral economics. She's interested in understanding how the social environment affects economic and health outcomes with a focus on developing countries. She told me about her recent work exploring the economic benefits of obesity in Uganda. Welcome, Elisa. Thank you very much for being here with me today. Thank you very much, Clementine, for inviting me. I'm very excited. I'm really excited to be talking about your thought-provoking paper. And, um, you know, you're touching upon a really key global health issue in your paper, which is obesity. And um, I wanted us to talk about the specificity of your context and why looking at obesity in Uganda matters for our understanding on how to address this global challenge. You know, we know that obesity is a major health issue, but what really got me interested in studying obesity in poor countries, I think, are two common misconceptions that we have about obesity. I think the first misconception is that we tend to think that obesity is a rich country problem only. Well, in reality, what we are living today is what the epidemiologists call um, a global uh, obesity epidemic, where more than 70% of obese and overweight people actually live in a low or middle income country. And then I think the second big misconception is that we, we tend to think, as I think in Western societies, that obesity is stigmatized, um, that obesity is often associated with a low economic status. And in reality, today, in most poor countries, similarly to, to what we saw in, in Europe in the past, fat bodies are actually positively perceived. And obesity is often described, if you want, as a sign of uh, wealth and prosperity. So you have obesity, which is associated with super high mortality rates in poor countries, but it's also at the same time a very salient status signal. And so, I mean, your research fits into this more general question, which is how does social status in general affect our consumption choices? So in the context of Uganda, how does it materialize and what are you interested in? We know that people spend money to look rich. So we know that uh, this is a phenomenon that we call conspicuous consumption. Uh, people buy goods and or engage in activities that make them look rich. And we know that this happens also in contexts where, surprisingly, people are actually very poor. So an example um, is actually rural India, where we know that people engage in, uh, spend a lot of money, for example, in weddings, celebrations, gifts, even when they, for example, don't have enough to eat on a daily basis. So I think uh, the question at this point is really, why would people do it? Why would people engage in this kind of conspicuous consumption? And perhaps do they actually get some economic benefits out of it? And this is something that was uh, is relatively understudied. My hypothesis in the paper is uh, that in developing country contexts, like, for example, Uganda, 
or India, where um, reliable wealth information is just not there often, or it's uh, very expensive to, to get, then people may end up using this visible data signals as uh, imperfect proxies for wealth in financial interactions. And then status signals may actually um, lead to financial benefits. So to study how obesity can be a sign of wealth, you actually conduct an experiment in the field. Could you give us, in a nutshell, the key ingredients of your experimental design and specifically how you create these profiles that you talk about in, in your paper? Yeah, so... What I want to understand is really, as you said, uh, whether okay, being obese in, in Uganda, in particular I work in Kampala, leads to financial benefits. And, and to answer this question, I, work, I look at um, credit markets as uh, my, um, if you want, my financial interaction of interest. And so what I want to understand is whether all else equal, the application, the loan application of an obese borrower is more likely to be approved. But you know that Right, obesity correlates with many other things, and so uh, this all else equal comparison can be difficult. And so, uh, how do you randomize obesity? What I do, I basically take uh, portraits, photographic portraits of real Kampala residents, previous consent, and uh, I work with two photographers. And we together we create for each uh, portrait a thinner version using Photoshop and a fatter version. And then at the same time, I collect a lot of information from prospective borrowers in Kampala about what type of loans they want to get, what amount they would like to, to ask for, what is the reason for the loan, and um, what is their occupation, and so on and so forth. And then I use this information to create um, 30 hypothetical borrowers' profiles. And these 30 hypothetical borrowers' profiles are then associated uh, to the thin version or the fat version of each portrait. That means that I end up with 30 pairs of identical loan applications, which differ only by the body mass of the applicant. And in this context, this randomization works quite well because normally in financial documents, people use passport pictures as identifiers. So it's not particularly strange for the loan officers to see a loan application with a picture. What I do then is I simply show these loan applications to loan officers. So I, I cooperate with 124 financial institutions uh, that provide credit in Kampala. And I interview their loan officers and I, ask, I show them these profiles and I basically randomly select whether a loan officer would see a, a loan profile in the fat or in the thin uh, version. And I then test whether this matters uh, for approval. And so overall, when you vary the body mass of a portrait, what do you observe in terms of the response of loan officers? So we see that a, a loan application, the very same loan application, when associated to the obese version of a borrower, uh, it's substantially more likely to be approved and the loan officers are more likely to, to be willing to meet this person for discussing a loan application. It means that an obese borrower's all else equal has a substantially higher um, substantially easier access to credit. And what I find striking is that the effect is very large in the sense that being obese improves access to credit as much as doubling your self-reported income in, in the application. So this is, uh, I think, very interesting. And then the, the second question I had was a bit, okay, why? Uh, so why are obese people preferred? And what I see is that this is mostly a response to asymmetric information. 
I mean, that is that the loan officers are trying to extract information about the borrower's wealth, hoping that richer borrowers will be actually better at paying back. And how I can see this um, is because I can actually vary the amount of financial information that is uh, included in the loan applications. And I see that the more financial information about the borrower the loan officers have available, the less they care about uh, a person's body mass. La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take one minute to explain one technical aspect of their research. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about the pre-analysis plan and what it is and why it is useful in research, especially today with this increasing effort for more transparency and replication. Yeah, so I, I have I ran three experiments basically in, uh, in the paper and all the three experiments were pre-registered. What do I mean by this? It means that I, I wrote this document, as you call it, a pre-analysis plan, in which I pre-specify what uh, data will I, will I collect, how will I collect it, from which sample, and finally, how I will analyze this data in my, in my work. Then I upload it online in the social science uh, registry, this, this pre-analysis plan, before the start of my data collection. The aim of this pre-analysis plan, are, are, the aims are basically two. So one thing is we want to tackle sort of publication bias. We know that basically experiments that tend to provide a result versus experiments that tend to provide uh, a find a, no, a null result are more likely uh, to, to be published. So in that sense, if a project does not work out or if a hypothesis is actually not bared by the data, then it's often not published. It can be that another researcher will try to run the same experiment because they don't know that uh, this has already been done in the past. And so uh, this is really not efficient. And so now, by now, I think it's very good practice if you have an idea and you want to test it, to just uh, look it up, whether in the social science registry someone has already done this. And then I think the second reason why you want to have a pre-analysis plan and pre-register your experiment is uh, to tie your hands as, a, as an experimentalist and uh, to avoid p-hacking in a sense that you you pre-specify how you're going to analyze the data and the best case scenario you then stick to your pre-analysis plan and uh, if not you have to explain why often there are reasons why you don't want to stick to your pre-analysis plan but you have to motivate it which i think uh, makes it for a more right, transparent research process you conduct this experiment with loan officers, you also investigate whether these patterns are observed in the general population. Why does it matter to do that? There are two reasons, I think, for this. So the first thing is that if there are benefits from being obese or for just signaling status in credit markets, then it may be the case that actually the population is not aware of it. If this was the case, then we could imagine that the implications of my results are actually smaller. But what I actually see is that in the general population, not only people are aware of obesity benefits, but they also strongly overestimate the benefits of being obese. And I see even more generally these patterns that both loan officers and, uh, and borrowers tend to place too much weight on obesity as a signal of wealth. So this is 
very, I think, interesting because it's telling you that this way of extracting information that the loan officers have uh, is potentially uh, not necessarily efficient for credit markets. Or it's efficient for credit markets because people hold inaccurate beliefs about what it means to be obese and think that actually being obese is way more a sign of wealth than it actually is. And following up on that, how do you think that these results affect the way we think about policies? And I'm thinking about both uh, credit market inclusion and financial inclusion in general, but also obesity prevention policies, for instance. Yeah, so I think in terms of credit markets and financial inclusion, I think the results are quite clearly pointing out that improving the information environment in which loan offices or just in general financial institutions moves in, in developing countries is really uh, first order. And uh, in terms of obesity prevention policies, I think what the results show is that in a poor country today, people often face a very relevant and salient trade-off between uh, the socioeconomic benefits of having a high body mass and the health costs that are associated with it. And I think this trade-off needs to be taken into account when you think of designing obesity prevention policies that are targeted to a lower-income country setting, which is something very salient considering the current global obesity epidemic. Okay, well, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you had a recommendation for our listeners of a book or movie or anything you would like to share. I just read this fantastic book by Olivia Lang, which is called The Lonely City. It's a book about loneliness, uh, discrimination, especially by gender or sexual orientation in, in New York. And uh, it's an essay. Uh, I found it really illuminating and also sometimes uh, not easy, but I would totally recommend it. Thank you so much, Elisa, for your time and for this really interesting conversation. Thank you. It was great. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Vanefonter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.